It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Thank you for joining us for a Tuesday edition of our podcast. And I got to be honest with you, this is not something you get a chance to do every day. And this is not something you get a chance to listen to every day. Uh, federal judges, I mean, you think about it, that's one third of our government, the judicial branch. It's probably the most mysterious, certainly to people who are not attorneys. Judges rarely do interviews. They don't like offer opinions on current topics, you have to read their opinions. And even then, the opinion is the matter that's in front of them. They don't just wake up in the morning and say, gosh, I'm really interested in what's happening in Eastern Europe or the Middle East or pick an issue. Let me write an opinion. It has to be something that is in front of them. They're highly coveted positions, almost impossible to get. I say that. I worked for a federal judge. And every time we would drive by a cemetery, he would say that cemetery is full of people who were waiting to become a federal judge. You serve for life, although the Constitution, I think, says for the period of your good behavior, it's really for life. And we have one. We have Judge Marvin Quattlebaum from Greenville, South Carolina, whom I have known since law school. It's no surprise to me that he became a federal judge. But I want you to hear the journey to become one, if that's even the right word, more importantly, what they do, what they don't do, what a day in the life might be like. So with that, Judge Quattlebaum, uh, this is a rare treat for us. Thank you for doing it. Thank you, Trey. It's a, it's a treat for me, too. Um, as, as you said, we go back a while. I think it's sadly to say about 37 years to make us feel old, but it's great to be with you this morning. All right. Law school, you did very well. You got out of law school. You joined uh, what may have been the largest firm in South Carolina. I think it was at the time. It's certainly one of the larger firms in the country right now. Had a fabulous career. You were the president of the South Carolina Bar Association. U.S. senators asked you to actually screen and vet other candidates for federal judgeships. You won a number of awards. And still, there's like no way to plan to become a federal judge, is there? It it just it's a combination of qualification and timing. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Um, you know, when this happened to me, I was practicing law. I, I thought practicing law was a great way to make a living. If this had never happened, I would have been completely content to continue my career doing that. But the stars kind of aligned and opportunity came about and 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 yeah, I was honored to be asked. But it's not really something I plan for, nor do I think there's any real way to plan for it. All right. Well, you can't plan for it, but you gotta prepare once your number is called. And for those of us who have watched Supreme Court confirmation hearings, even maybe appellate court and just 
just so our listeners know, Judge Quattlebaum was what we call a U.S. District Court judge, which is a trial judge. They preside over trials. You got a jury in the room. You got opening statement, closing statement, cross-examination. He did that. And then he was elevated, if that is the right word, to the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals, which is an appellate court. There is no jury. There is no trial. It is not like a search for facts. It's a very different kind of judgeship. So let's just go right there. The biggest difference between being a trial judge and being an appellate judge. Yeah, in many ways, they're very different um, for the reasons you just talked about. But both you and I as lawyers you know, did trial work. Um, we practiced in front of juries. Um, you know, law mattered a lot, but facts mattered a lot um, during the trial work. We don't have that um, on the Court of Appeals. We, um, we deal most issues of law. Um, we're not in courtrooms where trials are taking place. So in one sense, it's quieter and maybe a little bit more isolated. We read a lot. We write a lot. We don't see live witnesses or anything like that. And, and you know, from time to time, I miss the action that goes along with that trial work. But on the other hand, we deal with the law and we have a pretty, you know, pretty important role of you know, making sure that the law is followed and in some cases interpreting the law and establishing the law. So they're quite different positions in, in a sense. In another sense, there's some similarities too. I mean, we, we, we have the basic desire to get to the right answer. Um, you know, lots of times in trials, it happens through advocacy and, and judges or juries deciding. But the goal is to, through our system, get to the right answer. And I view my job on the Court of Appeals the same way. Um, I'm doing my best to get to the right answer, not the answer that I think is, you know, I could pick if I was king, but the answer that the law requires. And so there are similarities, at least in that way. All right. I want to follow up on that. You were an advocate. You, you did a lot of work on what we call the civil defense side. But the case I remember you handling, I mean, I remember a lot of your cases, but I, the case that left the biggest impression on me was a plaintiff's case where you actually represented the parents or the estate, if you will, of a young boy who was killed on a bicycle. So you're an advocate. You are advocating. I remember in that case, they came in, they initially offered burial expenses for the life of that child. And you said, no, that's that's not going to get it. And the settlement wound up being significantly higher than that. But you were an advocate. How do you go from being an advocate to being a neutral, detached referee? That, that's a great question. Um, yeah, and I, by, before I answer it, I do remember that that was Red in Virginia um, Richards um, from Cherokee, South Carolina. And, and, and while I had that case, you worked with me, too. And I think we both had the honor and privilege of doing that work. It is different. I thought it was going to be quite hard to take off my advocate hat. I did that for almost 28 years. 
But I will say, to my surprise, that has not been as hard as I thought it would be. I, there is something about being sworn in and swearing to interpret the law um, and to do so without any, you know, in, any way that your personal preferences might come into play. There's something about that oath that is quite compelling and that I you know, think about and that I think other judges think about. That's what we're called to do. And I think, by and large, we do that um, faithfully. I thought it would be hard, but there's something, I don't know if it's mystical or, you know, uh, weighty about that oath that it turns out I don't feel like that's been that hard. You know, you have, I've had the pleasure of interviewing you a couple of times, and you always come back to that oath. And where my mind has gone is to the word humility. You and I have a mutual friend who actually has been on this podcast. He's on the South Carolina Supreme Court. To say that he's an anti-smoker would not do justice to the anti-smoking movement. I mean, I think the guy lives at Whole Foods. I mean, I think he's a squatter at Whole Foods. He is just the most all-natural, granola, crunchy. So everybody thought that he was going to uphold a smoking ban when when it was before him. And he would have if he'd been a legislator. But he was a judge. And so he like had the humility is the word I use, the humility to say this is not about what Justice Few or Judge Quattlebaum's thoughts on the matter are. This this is this is illegal. So to many of us, we wake up and think, okay, this is what I think about this issue. This is how I feel or think or believe. But that's not the end of the analysis for y'all. No, that's it. That's exactly right. And 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 really, it's not much of the analysis at all. Um, I mean, it, it, if it were, quite frankly, it might be easier because we all kind of have our views on certain things. But once again, we we swear that we're not going to decide um, cases before us on that. And I think the role of humility is right. Um yeah, humility, at least in terms of what um, our role is in, in our system of government. And I think of it in two ways. Um, one, the role of a judge is quite different than the role of a legislator. And our job is to follow and apply and interpret the law. It's not to make the law in the way legislatures do. And it's not to use you know, fancy judicial words to say we're interpreting and really write it. Um, we should follow the law. Um, and if we want to make the law, you know, we should run for your old job, Congress, or run for senator or whatever that might be. Um, so that's one thing. But there's another element of it, too, um, Trey, and that's within the judicial role. And I'm talking about an appellate court now. You know, we also you know, need to understand our role in um, in the litigation system, in the legal system. Trial court judges are dealing with things. And when we review them, many times it's for what's called abuse of discretion. Now, that's a fancy sort of legal word. But what that really means is, Just because I would have done things different 
doesn't give me the right to overrule what was done below as long as that was a reasonable action. And so I think we have to have that humility, both in terms of where we are, you know, compared to other parts of the government and where we are compared to other courts within the legal system. I can't imagine that it did not help you because you're you're an appellate judge now. So you do what you exactly what you just described. There's no jury. There are no witnesses. It's really just two lawyers arguing the law in front of you based on a record. But you did it for so long and you were a trial judge. Do you. I'll be careful how I ask this. I don't want to suggest that those who did not do that don't have the same sensitivities. But do you think it helped you? that you actually have had to make split-second decisions that could have gone either way. It really does. And, and, and you know, I was not on the district court very long to grasp that as much as folks who served in that role more than me. But before that, I was a lawyer, and I saw judges do that. And that job is so important, the trial court job. Their workload, quite frankly, is, is you know, larger than ours. Um, as you just described, Many times they have to make split second decisions um, that we get to um, labor over and um, dissect over weeks and months. Um, so that does inform, I think, how I look at the job. I do appreciate what goes on there. Um, and I hope I do um, the right thing in the way we review trial court's decisions. You're listening to our conversation with Judge A. Marvin Quattlebaum, Jr. Jason in the House, the Jason Chaffetz Podcast. Dive deeper than the headlines and the party lines as I take on American life, politics, and entertainment. Subscribe now on foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you download podcasts. I want to ask you a question about sort of the way the public perception or maybe misapprehensions about the role of the judiciary. I, I remember back in the old days, a judge in Greenville set a bond and the bond was, uh, I don't say controversial, but there's certainly <laughs> arguments on both sides of it. But the judges are kind of powerless to go explain why they did what they did. They don't hold press conferences. You really speak through opinions or orders. Even then, you don't always like write it out. So is there ever this sense or this frustration, I wish we could explain it, or are there misapprehensions that maybe the public has about about what judges can or should do? Yeah, I hope I'm answering your question the right way when I do this, and certainly if I'm not getting to what you're trying to ask, but it is at times frustrating when I hear um the press or even people talk about judges um, in a way that seems very connected to the political process. Um, I don't think there has been an article written about an opinion I've written that hasn't listed my name, not as Marvin Quattlebaum Jr., but as Marvin Quattlebaum, quote, a Trump appointee. And it's not just Trump appointees that that happens to. Almost every article references the president that appointed the judge. And I really wish the public could see you know, how courts really operate. We aren't a bunch of 
um, politicians trying to enact policy. We are judges that may come from a different place based on you know how we were appointed, but that are generally trying to get to what the law is. And and I do um, you know regret at times the way um, we're discussed in the media and other places in a way that suggests we're really just doing the jobs of a certain president or a certain political party. Every article that I can remember reading does exactly what you described, comma, an Obama appointee, comma, a Clinton appointee, as if that is all we need to know. And it would be just as accurate, actually more accurate, to say, comma, a Senate-confirmed judge. And many of these confirmations, including yours, were bipartisan, of overwhelming votes. So the notion that it's just as easy to drop a comma and list the Democrat senators who voted for your confirmation as it would be to drop a comma and say a Trump appointee mm-hmm. whom, to the best of my knowledge, I don't know that you ever met him. I, I don't I don't know that. I've never asked you, but he certainly wasn't part of your your confirmation process. I mean, I, I you were you were confirmed by U.S. senators. So to your point, this notion that if we can just figure out who put them on the bench, the rest of it, that is politics. Let me ask you this. I was with you at a conference and it was happened to be a day that some pretty important Supreme Court decisions came out. And I remember somebody came up to you and said, what's your opinion? I mean, the headlines were blaring about all these opinions. Somebody said, what's your opinion? And you, in your typical non-sarcastic, non-mean-spirited way, said, if, if it's okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go read the opinions first. These are 60, 80, 100-page opinions that are reduced to a headline usually by somebody who didn't go to law school. Mm-hmm. That has got to be frustrating a little bit. Look, we do important stuff, and I, I you know, and the fact that it's uh, written about is, of course, appropriate. Um, but I do think, you know, we're at a time when it seems like people come to quick opinions based on outcomes. And our job is... You know, certainly has an outcome to it, and I don't want to act like that's not very important. But our process is, you know, very important too. And our process doesn't start with the outcome. Our process starts with looking at the law, looking at it carefully, and um, making decisions based on that. The part that gets a little bit maybe frustrating is I don't know that people realize that, and I don't know that people realize that me and other judges frequently come to outcomes that if we were to pick the outcome, we wouldn't come to. Um, To be honest, I measure that. I keep up with it. And if all my decisions line up perfectly with the way I would have decided it, it, if I didn't have to look at the law, you know, I really question whether I'm doing my job right. And, and, And there are times that the answer that is right, the legally correct answer, is different than I might prefer. But it's my oath to go that direction when that's what the law calls for. 
That is remarkably similar to what a current justice of our Supreme Court said during his confirmation that if you don't disagree with your own opinions and decisions, that maybe you should reevaluate the way you are looking at your job, which is, to me, that's why I keep coming back to the word humility, the ability to say, this is not what I would have done, but it has been done and it was done correctly. And it's not for me to change it. That is, we don't see that a lot. Um, All right, that old judge, you knew him too. You appeared in front of him, Judge Ross Anderson, drove me by the graveyards and said there are a lot of people waiting on judgeships out there that never got them. It's impossible, I think, to plan to be a federal judge. Is it possible for a young person to prepare, not to plan, because you don't know if there's ever going to be an opening or if you're going to you know, you may you may be the second best qualified person in the state, and you're no closer to becoming a federal judge than I am right now. But can you prepare? Are there things that you look back on your career and say, this helped me? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I really think to the extent you want to be prepared, if that opportunity were ever to present itself, It really goes to doing your best to being as good a lawyer as you can. Um, That sounds kind of simple, but I think the best judges, by and large, were the best lawyers. And so I would encourage any young lawyer to embrace that role as a lawyer. I know lawyers aren't real popular in our society, um, and, you know, I get maybe some of the reasons, but almost all of the legal uh, work that gets done in our country, I mean, a very small percentage of that happens before judges. So lawyers have this important role, and to embrace that role as part of our legal system, I mean, you and I talked about the um, Richards case. The lawyers on both sides of that case had a crucial role in determining an important issue. And that's the same for all sorts of cases that are being handled today and every day across our country. So I would first just say as lawyers, embrace that you get to do that for a living. It's a wonderful way um, to make a living and to serve as well. Beyond that, I would say, look for various opportunities Um, I was mostly a civil lawyer. I wish I had done a little bit more. Well, one case would have been more um, criminal work. Um, I wish so. So a little more breadth of practice, I think, would be a good thing. Another another way I would prepare is to serve your profession in some way. Um, you, You mentioned that I was. Um, fortunate enough to um, work with the South Carolina Bar. Um, That's an organization that represents all lawyers, not just corporate lawyers, plaintiff's lawyers, um, prosecutors, criminal defense lawyers, really everyone. And I think that gave me both an appreciation of the various types of legal work. And and so I think that was helpful. And, 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 you know, while... You know, I'm emphasizing the lack of um, political 
influence in our legal decisions. I'd be a little naive to say there's not some politics in the selection of judges. And so, you know, involvement in the political process in a way that you feel, you know, is comfortable for you, I think is a good uh, a good thing to do because at some level, um, senators uh, recommend judicial nominees Yes. Right. And, and they have to know about you. And, and, and so they can do that in various ways. But some some political involvement you know, might be helpful as well. All right. The word collegiality comes to my mind a little bit. I the other night on a show that they are kind enough to let me host from time to time, I, I read basically judged the police report from Congress. It was all the allegations of assault and all I me. Mean, uh, kidney punches and and threats and I hear none of that in your branch. You sit in panels of three at a minimum. Sometimes you sit all together, and there just seems to be a collegiality among you that maybe does not exist in the legislative branch. So I won't ask you to contrast it with the legislative branch, but. Am I correct that there is a collegiality even among those of you who have, may have very different jurisprudential perspectives? There very much is, and, and I'm really unfortunate to sit on the court I sit on, the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals. Um, we are known, among other circuits even, for that collegiality, um, and it makes the job so much more enjoyable. Um, we have you know, judges appointed by, you know, Republican presidents, judges appointed by Democrat presidents. You know, we disagree often on outcomes, although I should say probably not as often as the public thinks. Far more of our decisions are unanimous than otherwise. But when we disagree, we still um, maintain that collegiality. And I think there are at least two ways we do that. One is we spend time together. When we're in Richmond um, holding court, we do our legal work, but we do some social stuff together. And when we're doing that, we're not like saying, why'd you write that opinion? You know, I think you're wrong. We talk about the stuff that normal people talk about. We talk about, you know, how bad my golf swing is, you know, <laughs> which you can't really appreciate, but I can. Um, we talk about football. We talk about podcasts. We talk about books. We talk about our families and kids. The same thing that people who aren't judges are talking about. And when you do that, you you know you see that you have a lot more in common than the differences you might have on legal issues. And then when we disagree, and we do do that at times, I think it's important that we write our disagreements um, in a way that doesn't sugarcoat them, but doesn't suggest the other side's views are illegitimate. Um, and we don't, and try not to make personal attacks about how another judge came to his or her um, opinion. Um, I think those two things, you know, shared time, and respect in the language enhances that collegiality. And I think that's a large part of why we have it on the Fourth Circuit. 
Is there a category of case or was there a category of case that you initially found the hardest to prepare for, given your background? And, and there's no one on the uh, appellate court that, that had a background in everything. I mean, you, they may be a law professor and didn't practice, but was there one category of case you thought, wow, this is more complicated than I thought it was, and it's going to take me some time? Yeah, I would say both. Yeah, let me say it. Um, the type of case I had the least experience in was criminal law. And two aspects about that. Well, I remember, um, I still remember the first criminal plea I took on the district court. And the weight that I felt in the courtroom on just a plea. I mean, all they're doing is saying, yeah, I did it. But saying, yeah, I did it had enormous consequences for that person and his family. And I could feel the weight of a criminal proceeding where someone's liberty is at stake in a way I'd never really appreciated before I became a judge. So that's number one. Number two, the the law in the criminal world you know, is, is, you know, different. And that took me and still takes me perhaps more time. But but we do have time. That's the one thing this job gives us is the time to work hard and learn. And um, it's been a little bit less hard than I thought going into areas that I wasn't as familiar with because we're blessed with, number one, really smart young clerks you know, who, who helped me out a lot. And number two, the time to dig in and figure things out. We'll be right back with more of the Trey Gowdy podcast. All right, I got a couple more questions, and then I'm going to let you get back to work because your work ethic uh, is legendary among uh, those of us who know you in South Carolina. Which was harder to prepare for? The bar exam, which is <laughs> is just, it is jarring. Uh, you and I took that at the same time. I still remember it, uh, mostly with negative feelings, but that's not on television. The confirmation hearings in Washington, you're being quizzed by senators who may or may not have your best interest in mind. Which was tougher to prepare for? So I think probably the bar exam was tougher because it was just, you remember, it was just so much stuff. And it was a three-day exam. And it was a bunch of material. And, and, and while we didn't have TV cameras rolling, it was kind of important to whether we got to make some money after being in, in school for a while. So the bar exam was probably tougher, but a judiciary hearing or judiciary committee hearing was more nerve wracking because you don't know what they're going to ask. Um, and you don't know whether they even care about the outcome. It may be they want to, they want to ask a question to, you know, make a point and, and, or whatever. So that was very nerve wracking. I remember I got asked a question about, so this was in 2018. I got asked a question about an article I had co-authored in 2007 and, 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 you know, had to know enough about it to hopefully not get led down the path the wrong way. But it was so it's a nerve wracking process. Um, yeah, it was good to have those two things behind me. All right. You mentioned the 
number of opinions that your court issues that are unanimous. But every now and again, you do have to dissent or you feel compelled to dissent. What is kind of your standard for, you know, I mean, if my wife says I want to watch this and I I sort of don't want to, but don't care, I may go along. If she says we're going to watch a Hallmark movie and I say there's not a chance in the world, I'm going in another room to watch something else. When do you dissent as opposed to just kind of say, ah, okay, it's not worth it this time? Yeah, um, I don't think I ever really, you know, come down on it's not worth it. Um, I, I, first of all, I, my goal is not to dissent. Um, I think all, you know, things being equal, you know, it's helpful when we can come together. So if an opinion is written a way that is, you know, not the way perhaps I would have written it, um, but it doesn't alter the law in a way that I feel is improper, um, yeah, I I will generally go along with that. Um, I'll also explore with the judge who is writing the opinion sometimes, hey, can you do this? Would you be open to removing this section? It still gets you to the place you're going, but it's a little bit more narrow. And I you know, am glad to consider similar requests when they come to me. That allows us sometimes when, if we were writing by ourselves, we might write a certain way. But if we're together, given the fact that we got to reach a consensus, you might write a little more narrowly to accommodate everyone. So those things happen and they lead to most cases being unanimous. But as you point out, there are times where there's just principal differences. And in those cases, I you know, feel it's my duty to write separately. I think I should. Part of my oath that I took is when I see things a certain way and the majority goes a different way, you know, I, I feel obligated to write a dissent, and I do that really without hesitation. And hopefully I do it in a way that's persuasive, if not to my friends on the majority, to other courts that might read our opinions. Um, and hopefully I do it in a way that you know, is respectful to the folks I disagree with. Just to recap, ladies and gentlemen, I'll probably get this wrong. And if I do, the judge will correct me. He serves on the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals. Our country is divided into judicial circuits. The Fourth Circuit includes South Carolina, North Carolina, Virginia, West Virginia, and Maryland. Did I leave one out? You got it. All right. And they sit in panels of three. When you watch television and you see a jury and you see lawyers crying and, you know, moaning and groaning in front of a jury and a judge saying sustained or overruled, he used to do that, but that's not what he does now. It's one court above that. It is just a half step shy of the U.S. Supreme Court. They don't decide facts. They decide questions of law. Your work ethic, Judge, I've known you for going on 40 years is legendary in this state. You have a discrete number of cases. It's not like in the old days where, okay, I've done my work. I'm going to go get some more. I'm going to go help this person with this file. I mean, you once it's done, it's done. 
I know that you're doing some teaching. I know that you and your wife are very active in the community and church. What what else do judges do? We we view them as like mystical. We're we, we're afraid to talk to them. We don't know what to say. I call them your honor just to be careful. I mean, most of them don't require it. But what do you do when you're not writing opinions and working on your cases? Well, um, it is funny. I will say I had the same sort of view of judges before I became one. You know, I thought they were the smartest people in the legal profession. And 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 now that I am one, I know that can't be true. Um, but we're like everyone else. I mean, you know, I, 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 when I'm not working, um, you mentioned things that are important. My church is important to me. I, I, I mentioned um, some hobbies I have. Um, I'm not near as good as you, but I try to get better at playing golf. I try to exercise a little bit. I got three kids and one grandkid. You know, they, they still are big parts of our lives. Every now and then I try to go down yeah, you know, Highway 25 in Greenville to this place that's got a fishing pond and some hunting land. I watch sports on the weekend. Yeah, I read books. That's kind of my life. It probably is boring compared to some folks, but but try not to make it all about work, even though my wife would point out I probably fail in that effort. <laughs> well, he has reached the pinnacle of the legal profession uh, to become – a federal judge, awfully, awfully hard to do. And ladies and gentlemen, it is. And I used to have friends who were judges when I was a district attorney. I used to beg them, please, I mean, let the public know why you did what you did. They're just they are often handcuffed in ways that politicians are not. They don't hold press conferences. They don't go sit down with the media and say, well, let me tell you this and let me tell you that. They speak through opinions. So, Judge, the fact that you would give us a glimpse inside a one-third of our government, co-equal, co-terminous branch of government, and it is probably the one that we see the least and maybe know the least about. So thank you for doing this. and. All the best to you and your continued service on the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals. Thank you so much, Trey, and thanks for what you do. Um, It's been a lot of time um, talking together. This has been a great time. All right. Take care, and thank you all for listening. Listen ad-free with a Fox News Podcast Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts. And Amazon Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on the Amazon Music app. The Will Kane Show is now dropping five episodes a week. Join Fox and Friends weekend host Will Kane as he tackles the latest headlines from his unique perspective, along with thought-provoking interviews with leading figures and live calls from viewers and listeners. Listen wherever you download your favorite podcasts.